This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, John Crace watches Rishi Sunak veer between dull and delusional in his Tory conference speech. Actor Julia Fox unpacks abuse, fame and dating Kanye. And the story of how an advert for a reality show led to a big British TV mystery. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, after a rocky start, John Crace is finally let in for the keynote speech at the Tory party conference. The verdict? Sunak may be slightly better than the Maybot, but he's still very much AI in development. Read by Dan Starkey. Oh, brave new world. An hour before Rishi Sunak's speech, I went to get my pass. You haven't been given one, I was told by the Tory press office. I couldn't even use a colleague's. It was me they didn't want. Me and my luxury beliefs. Then things got truly wild. The Telegraph's sketchwriter was also banned. Not for the first time this week, the Conservative Party conference had disappeared through the looking glass. Then, redemption. After half an hour of ridicule on Twitter, the Tories changed their mind. When they had said, I wasn't welcome, what they really meant was, they were desperate for me to come. Even Rish is into dialectics these days. He couldn't wait for me. No one could imagine how I'd ever thought otherwise. There were even plenty of empty seats in the media section for me. Whoever would have guessed. Onto the stage strode Penny Mordant to give the 750 or so party faithful a quick lift before Sunak put them to sleep. This is the turning point, she told them. She would have waved her sword of destiny if she had remembered to bring it. The last 13 years had built up to this moment. The Tories had deliberately driven the country into the ground. So now the Conservatives were the only party who could rescue us all from the Conservatives. Penny knew we were on track because we were at our lowest ebb. It was time for the Tories to stand up and fight. Each other. So far, so deranged. 
Michael Gove might not be the only one to be out of his head. Even Johnny Mercer didn't know why he had been allocated a five-minute slot, so we quickly moved on to a surprise appearance from Akshata Murti, Sunak's wife. Pure saccharine. Cringe. She just wanted the world to love Rish as much as she did. If she had to think of one word to describe her husband, it was... Go for it, Akshata. Try rich. She didn't. Instead, she ignored the word cloud and chose aspiration. He had clawed his way up from nowhere to marry a billionaire, and he wanted everyone else to do the same. Good luck with that. And what had really attracted her to him was the way he was so selfless. He just couldn't stop giving. Give, give, give. That's why he had gone into politics because he had wanted to make the world a better place for the little people, having first made his fortune as a hedge fund apparatchik for Goldman Sachs. Everyone needs a safety net. Not quite as entertaining as an intro from one of Boris Johnson's lovers. Enter the Richter, the Richmeister. This was his big moment. The last chance saloon. Shit or bust for the Great Reset. Make that bust. The Tory brand is screwed. No one trusts them anymore. So all that Rish has left to sell is himself. And that's just not enough. Because there's nothing really to him. He's the ultimate two-dimensional wealthy technocrat. He has no vision, let alone one that he's capable of selling. And the Manchester crowd were never his people anyway. They voted for Liz Truss. They believed in her stupidity. Her insanity. What was needed was some passion to persuade people to suspend their natural cynicism, to get them to believe the unbelievable, if only for an hour. But that's beyond him. Sunak may be a slight improvement on the Maybot, but he's still very much AI in development. Rish GPT. He just sounds awkward, detached. Words tumble out in more or less the right order, but they are drained of emotional intelligence. He's bet the house on himself, and he can't even connect with himself. He merely sounds patronising, condescending. Listening to him speak is an ordeal. Rish GPT started with the usual off-the-peg personal guff. Yawn. Son of a GP and a pharmacist. He likes to treat others as he would like to be treated himself. Presumably, that means he likes being abused by Suella, given Legionella, and deported to Rwanda each to his own. Then we moved on to his self-invented ideology. Politics was broken. Who broke it, I wonder? Another Tory politician who was in denial about his party's past. And his part in it. Sunak was Johnson's Chancellor and never registered any disquiet. But he would do things differently now. He was an agent of change. An unelected one. Even his party members didn't want him. Welcome to the new world. Same as the old world. Listen, he said. A few people still may have been. Rish GPT was not afraid to make the difficult long-term decisions. Which just happened to be the only way he could imagine reaching the short-term goal of avoiding annihilation at the next general election. He had decided the best way of reaching net zero targets was by getting rid of net zero targets. That's climate change sorted. Making the difficult decision that it didn't really matter. Life was too short. 
which brought us on to HS2. Another long-term decision he'd been too frightened to mention for the last week, in case his conference descended into even more chaos. But don't worry, Manchester in the North. As a special treat, he was announcing several transport infrastructure projects that had already been announced, including a Nottingham Ring Road that went from Dover to London. And if none of this actually ever got built, then no harm done. The North would be no worse off than it was now, and he'd be long since off to Santa Monica. The UK could go fuck itself. There was time for a gratuitous swipe at trans issues. This got the biggest cheer of the day. Before Rish GPT declared a smoking ban. He knew this wouldn't go down well with the libertarian right, so he was going to make sure people could still die early by abolishing ULES. Oh, and there would also be some education reforms that would never happen, so no need to worry about that either. All this took more than an hour, and it felt like it. Even ignoring the fact that much of it was clinically delusional, it was all a bit dull. There was no spark of hope. The Tories clapped politely, but with little enthusiasm. They had come hoping for a miracle, that their lurch to the far right was a political masterstroke. Now they could see the future, and it wasn't pretty. Oblivion would be a release. Sunak had pressed the reset button and found himself back precisely where he had started. That was Rish GPT veers between dull and delusional in Tory conference speech by John Crace. Read by Dan Starkey. Next. After a wild and troubled young life growing up in New York, the actor Julia Fox came out of nowhere to become the breakout star of indie hit Uncut Gems. Then, after a month dating the controversial rapper Kanye West, things somehow got even weirder. Read by Sue Ann Braun. This article mentions sexual assault and abuse. Please take care while listening. There is a motif running through Julia Fox's new memoir that hints at the incredulity one may experience while reading it. I can't believe this is my life, writes the 33-year-old in Down the Drain, and the phrase is not a rhetorical flourish. The story of her rackety early years in 2000s Manhattan takes in periods as a runaway, an artist, a dominatrix, and a provocateur of a kind that grows out of a very particular and unsupervised downtown New York childhood. She has overdosed twice, been in a series of abusive relationships with men, starting in her mid-teens, and fleetingly been committed to a psychiatric ward. And this is before she appears in a hit movie and becomes tabloid bait for briefly dating a controlling and coercive superstar. As a result, says Fox, she was for a long time a titanic pain in the ass to almost everyone she encountered. I really hated when people felt bad for me, so it's almost like I was an asshole on purpose, to prevent that pity. I was a jerk, entitled and selfish, but I feel like you have to be when you're in survival mode. That survival mode is still in place, although, Fox hopes, these days it manifests in somewhat diluted form. Since 2019, when she won her first acting role in the movie Uncut Gems alongside Adam Sandler, her persona has been outsized and conscientiously unruly. In the years following her debut, she would appear on the red carpet pulling wild faces and mouthing off about her own genius. 
or posting drunken screeds about her ex-husband on Instagram. Have you seen this deadbeat dad? That's not how she appears today. At a studio in Manhattan, Fox is pale, quiet, thoughtful, younger-seeming than her age. When I ask how old she is, she says without thinking, 22, before correcting herself. In shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops. She speaks with a flat, nasal effect of someone trying to repurpose a lot of memories from the bad into the merely boring, an objective she certainly achieves in the memoir, a picaresque tale told with a jauntiness often at odds with the events she is describing, and that she embarked on, she says, partly out of a love of writing and partly to make sense of everything that has happened to her. It is also, I suspect, an effort to wrest back control of her reputation after the warping effect of her extremely brief, extremely public involvement with Kanye West in 2022. I try to be as fair as I could and as truthful as I could. It was a purge, I would say. For long stretches of the book, I itched to reach back retrospectively and call social services. Fox still lives downtown with her two-year-old son, Valentino, and is determined to create an environment for him as far from the one from which she emerged as possible, which is to say, one in which when she wasn't being screamed at, she was being totally ignored. As recounted in the memoir, her childhood and adolescence sound like a heavy-handed public service announcement from the 1970s about the perils that befall latchkey kids. Fox's father, a builder, was volatile and verbally abusive, so that I never really knew who I was going to get. He could be the best dad ever, or the literal worst. Her mother was absent for long stretches when she returned to her native Italy, and when she was present, fought explosively with her daughter. At 11, Fox was drinking, partying, and being hit on by 27-year-old men. At 12, she and Trish, her best friend, persuaded a sketchy tattoo artist to give them tattoos and nipple piercings. Her dad's main piece of parenting advice was, weed, heroin, cocaine, all that shit is fine. But stay away from PCP angel dust. It makes hair grow on your brain. When Fox was 16, she absconded with her boyfriend, Ace, a minor league drug dealer whom the cops threatened with charges of kidnap and statutory rape. The age of consent in New York is 17. Ace ended up in prison at Rikers Island on unrelated charges and wrote to inform Fox he wanted to murder her and her family. I decide that I've had enough, she writes, with the guilelessness that informs the whole book. I'm going to end things with him. One result of all this was a range of tics and behaviors that started young and persist. I would bite my nails, suck my thumb, hum a lot. I was humming and twirling my hair. I had a lot of security objects. She would sometimes sleep with a hairdryer on, for the warmth and the white noise, and because I wouldn't have to hear whatever was happening, the fighting. Her relationship with food, she says, was and remains very weird. I eat a lot of candy and sugar. Sometimes I don't eat one not sweet thing for the whole day. It's all candy, it's all ice cream. Compared with overdosing on heroin, of course it's not life or death. It's what I'm left with, but it's pretty harmless. I mean, I could get diabetes and high blood pressure or whatever, but I'm not going to, like, die. 
hopefully. This is how Fox is calibrated, to downgrade one set of hair-raising experiences against a set of others that are infinitely worse. When she was 14, she went to live for a while with a host family in Italy, in the depressing little town her mother came from and still periodically lived in on the edge of Lake Como. She was enrolled in Catholic school, which went as well as you might expect. Among other things, she discovered that two girls who sat behind her in class were keeping track of the color of my thongs in their notebook. The narrative, briefly, turns into a conventional coming of age, a period piece full of Miss Sixty jeans and Nokia phones and this exciting new thing called MySpace. In a phrase that'll make anyone over 40 smile, Fox says, I went through my Facebook messages of 2006 and really transported myself back in time. Even here, however, there is something wrong with the picture. After Fox is asked to leave the host family for smoking and skipping school, she pretends to her parents she has moved in with her mother's family, but instead goes to live in her mother's empty apartment. It's a sad image, I suggest. A 14-year-old living alone? Fox looks taken aback. At the time, I loved it. What if her son was living by himself at 14? Yeah, I can't even wrap my head around that. It's not an option. She can be dry and bleakly comic about these years of her life. She can also be entirely detached. Back in New York and out on the town, Fox and a friend get so drunk that when a bunch of men curb crawl and offer them booze, they get into the car and end up the next morning out of it in a motel with blacked-out memories of the night before. This falls into the category of things Fox says, my brain has erased that are traumatizing. When she is 16, she makes a desultory attempt to kill herself. She insists it is a superficial gesture to get the drug dealer boyfriend off her back and ends up in a psychiatric ward where she is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Within weeks of release, she overdoses in a hotel room with a bunch of Irishmen from Ireland whom she meets with a friend in a bar and is brought round by paramedics. Shortly after this, she responds to an ad on Craigslist for a dominatrix hiring, no sex, no nudity, no experience necessary. She takes the job because, she explains, it pays better than these minimum wage jobs that offered no benefits except the things I could steal. These events unfold breathlessly, unreflectively, and with a self-romanticizing air that has probably been chosen in avoidance of harder-to-bear narratives. In the dungeon downtown, Fox's first punter is a man in his 50s, scrupulously polite. I'm Stuart, but my friends call me Stu, who stands with his balls in a vice and likes having cigarette smoke blown through a tube into his mouth. I try not to recoil at the sight of his small, flaccid penis dangling limply between his chunky legs, writes Fox, who was in the last year of high school at the time. A middle-aged religious man asks her to sit on his face in her jeans. A middle-aged British man asks if he can flog her. A middle-aged Indian billionaire pays her to talk to him for four hours. The men say, Wow, you're so beautiful. You're so young. After working in the dungeon for a month, Fox writes, she has got enough money to move into her own apartment and quits, taking the contacts for her clients with her. Nowhere in this story does Fox use the word pedophile. By the time she encounters these men, 
She has been preyed on for so many years that, at the relatively advanced age of 18, and in a BDSM club with surveillance and protection and camaraderie, it seems to her a stable and enviable environment. It was the stuff before the dungeon when I was being used, she says. At a party at a friend's house when she is 11, a 27-year-old man kisses her, gropes her, and tries to sleep with her, shuffling off when she hides under the duvet and pretends to be asleep. She characterizes him as the first of many. I didn't want to be repetitive in the book, but there were... a lot of pedophiles. I didn't even realize that's what they were until I was much older, or just how many. They were everywhere, and kids back then didn't have the information they do now. Now, kids know when someone is too old, whereas back then it was just like, hot older guy. The media didn't help either. It was totally normal for a 17-year-old celebrity to be dating a 30-year-old whoever. It was normalized. In the dungeon, there were rules. She felt looked after. She honed skills that would come in handy later in life. It taught me how to perform. It was my first acting gig. It was improv all day, with different characters. It taught me to read a room and kind of know what somebody wanted to hear even before they knew it. She came to regard her time there as an experience in empowerment and something else, too. Even though the clients would say, you're so beautiful, you're so this, you're so that, I didn't believe it before I saw that I was being booked the most and taking the most money. After years of neglect and abuse, she found the hard metric welcome. I was like, oh, now I understand my worth. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Julia Fox. If it wasn't part of Fox's plan to become an actor, that's because she had no plan at all. 
which is, of course, not the same thing as not having ambition. Swimming around the clubs downtown in the mid to late 2000s, Fox had a style and velocity that garnered attention. She tried to get a design label off the ground, bankrolled by the Indian billionaire she had met in the dungeon, who, for five years, paid her rent and living expenses. This was a sweet deal, thought Fox, not least because Rowan was only mildly controlling. She put together a few local art exhibitions that seemed to go down very well a book of photos and artifacts chronicling some of her misadventures, and that included her ex-boyfriend's inmate tag and the missing poster her parents disseminated, featuring the wrong height and date of birth for her when she ran off with him, was presented at the New York Art Book Fair by a friend. An art exhibition called PTSD followed, featuring, Tracy Emmons' style, the recreation of a bedroom she had stayed in during a road trip to Louisiana, and in 2017... Another show, somewhat in the style of Nan Golden, called R.I.P. Julia Fox, in which she dropped her own blood onto canvas. These productions were energetic and original and won Fox the attention of ID Magazine and Dazed. She suffered low self-esteem, but on the flip side, she says, I always felt that something was going to happen, and so did the people around me. I had this supernatural force inside that I could do anything. But then there's the other voice that comes in immediately after and says, No, you can't. You're delusional. It's always a struggle between, I know I'm capable, I can do anything, and you're a piece of shit. You're not worthy. A friend of Fox's had been working on a film that no one in their circle thought would amount to anything. This was Josh Safdie, who writes and directs with his brother Benny. A few years later, after the pair had made Good Time an indie hit starring Robert Pattinson. That movie, Uncut Gems, was bought and Sandler was cast in it. Josh urged Fox to audition for the female lead. It's the kind of things friends say to each other all the time and in 99% of cases never go anywhere. But Fox turned up, dazzled the casting agents, was invited to do his scene with Sandler, and effectively performed her way into the role of Julia, rackety mole to Sandler's spiraling jewelry hustler with no acting experience whatsoever. The film was a critical hit, and Fox's life changed. Except that, in some ways, it didn't. Fox had a baby with Peter Artemiev, a pilot she met at the Uncut Gems rap party, married two months later, and divorced 18 months after that. She made a movie with Steven Soderbergh and Benicio Del Toro called No Sudden Move, 2021. As her fame grew, so it appeared to Fox, at times, that she had merely advanced to attracting a different kind of abusive man. In late 2021, a message reached her via a friend that a famous artist had been asking after her. This was West, who has changed his name to Ye, and a phone call between them was arranged. Over subsequent days, he called her multiple times and they talked for hours, or rather, in Fox's account, He talks for hours and I mostly listen. She writes, He loves my ideas and thinks I'm really smart. When he invited Fox to meet him in Miami for New Year's Eve, she politely declined. Her son wasn't yet a year old, so Ye chartered a private jet. She relented, taking her friends along with her. Within five days, he had put her friends on the payroll as stylists and asked if she wanted to take the relationship public. 
Before we go further, it should be pointed out that Fox dated Ye for less than a month, during which time she saw him a handful of times. It's also worth mentioning that this was the period during which he began his campaign of harassment against his ex-wife Kim Kardashian, abusing her via social media and publishing her private messages. Almost every time Fox and Ye met, the meeting was preceded by the arrival of a stylist and wardrobe, so she could change into something he had approved. On one of their early dates, a photographer was present. Afterwards, Ye sent photos of them making out to the editor of Interview magazine and asked Fox to write something about how they met. He didn't like what she wrote and sent in a new, entirely fabricated version, which is still online, and which she told him, correctly, sounded dumb. Describing one of their few unobserved hangouts in a hotel room, she writes, We spend the day playing Uno and a game that involves highlighting positive words in the dictionary. He told her, I'll get you a boob job if you want. Ah, the romance. She said no thanks and started eyeing the exit. Fox is great in these pages, funny and outraged and all over the place with indecision as she wrestles with the conflict of being simultaneously sucked in by the huge gravitational pull of Ye's fame, repulsed by his self-indulgence, and ignited by the opportunities, who can blame her, that being seen by his side will afford. I went into it with good intentions and feeling all this could be real, and it could be amazing and he could open so many doors. At some point in that brief month, Ye said he was going to get her a million-dollar modeling deal, and there followed a trip to Milan for Fashion Week, where, writes Fox, I meet Donatella and sit front row at the Versace show which I certainly never thought would happen. Then, in Paris, they argue after he tells her to stop bringing her friends on trips, and she tells him she'll only do so if he stops bringing his horrible entourage. He stops answering the phone. His assistant tells her he's on a month-long phone break, and shortly thereafter, they split up. The entire episode is ridiculous, and it's clear to Fox now that she was simply being used as a pawn in this grand master plan to get back at his ex-wife. That's humiliating. That's a really shitty position to be in. Still, looking back, she knows herself well enough to know that if it hadn't been for Valentino, her baby, pulling her back to reality, she would have chucked in everything and done whatever Ye asked. I know I'd have gone on this ride. As it was, she got irritated, then depressed, then jauntily dismissive. One day, an NDA arrived via Ye's assistant, and he texted her, I can't be friends with you if you don't sign it. I'll live, she replied. If Fox had imagined that being seen with Ye would help her out in life, things didn't necessarily shake out that way. Before Ye, she had been talked about as a hot new acting talent. Afterwards, as front row seats dried up, the conversation changed. A lot of people were like, oh, she's only famous because of Ye. It's like, no. I've been around, and I've been in a full fucking movie, and I did a lot of things before that, too. It's that you're just hearing about me now. That relationship doesn't define me. It's one little blip. Most of the blips in Fox's life have been dealt with via a rigorous program of denial. When she talks about her problems with men, specifically her pattern for choosing abusers, she says, I could go to therapy and unpack it, but I don't have the time to do that. I'd rather just swear off them. 
This is her mode of living. I just brush everything off, and she sticks to it. Occasionally, however, something happens that she has a harder time keeping at bay. Shortly before auditioning for Uncut Gems, Fox received an excited message from Liana, a friend, advertising what she called an invitation I can't refuse. This turned out to be from a billionaire with a private jet who wants to take us to Art Basel in a few days. Fox and Liana adjourned to Teterboro Airport, boarded a private jet with an intoxicated rich guy and his bro-y sidekick. Sipping champagne, Fox briefly thought, how lucky I was that my prayers for a sugar daddy were answered with Rowan rather than some jerk like this. Then she blacked out. When she woke up, hours later, she says she was in a hotel room in Miami, naked, in bed, alongside the billionaire. Did we have sex? She asked. And she says he lifted his head enough to slur, You wanted to pee on me, before passing out again. Horrified, she grabbed her luggage and ran to a friend's Airbnb. Later, when the man texted to ask after her, she told him that she had lost a diamond earring, whereupon he took her to a high-end jewelry store in Miami, and she shook him down for $6,500. It didn't even the score, says Fox, but it helped. What to make of this story? In the book, she bounces through it in the same jaunty, flippant register as all the others. Now, she refers to it as the date rape on the private jet. She assumes she was drugged. She says that before revisiting the memory for the memoir, it is something I had really tried to pretend didn't happen. Afterwards, she says, it didn't occur to her to go to the police. What would have been the point? Relative to her attacker, she was a nobody with no resources. Now, however, if something happened like that, I would definitely take the appropriate action, 100%. She hesitates. Then again, I don't know if I would and then go to battle, have years of my life taken away, and have to relive it? We've literally seen what happens with Amber Heard. It's like, is it worth it at the end of the day? Fox says she is a big believer in karma. I can be very spiteful and vengeful, she says. I love getting a good revenge. It makes me salivate. But I also have the wisdom to know, don't do anything. It'll do it on its own. Shitty people will get what's coming to them. The presence in the culture of a great many truly shitty people suggests this is categorically untrue. The difference for Fox, these days, is that where in previous phases of her life, when bad things happened, she would spiral towards drugs and drink, now she tries very hard to stay sane for her two-year-old. She's not entirely sober. I don't go to AA meetings. I love AA, and I've gotten a lot of tools from it, but now I really just abstain. I have a glass of wine if I'm going out, but it's very rare. I stopped smoking weed because I was such a pothead. I stay away from the things that I know will derail my life and I have no control over. The pandemic happening so soon after her debut movie came out put a big dent in her progression in the film industry. But she has some roles in the works. She's promoting the book. And in the meantime, she lives with Valentino, who, she prides herself, engages in none of the twitchy things that she had going on as a child. She has a stable co-parenting relationship with her ex-husband Peter, 
And her son, she says, is so happy, kind, generous, loves to dance. For all her difficulties, Fox has never had trouble giving herself praise when it's due. I'm like, oh, mission accomplished. That was, I could go to therapy and unpack it all, but I don't have time for that. Julia Fox on Abuse, Fame and Dating Kanye by Emma Brooks. Read by Sue Ann Braun. Down the Drain by Julia Fox, published by HarperCollins, is out on the 10th of October. To support The Guardian and The Observer, order your copy at theguardianbookshop.com. Finally, 20 years ago, successful applicants for places on a lucrative-sounding reality show soon found out there was no cash and no program. Two decades later, they tell their bizarre story by Daniel Dylan Ray, read by Isabel Farah. New reality TV show seeks contestants. One year, £100,000. Read a small advert in the stage in 2002, instructing the public to apply if you're characterful, resourceful and energetic. Hundreds did. An audition with production teams and camera crews was held at Ravens 8 Island in the Thames in Surbiton, West London, with potential contestants delivered via boat and a young man known as Nick Russian at the centre of it all. It was so professional, recalls Lucy Miller, who was 34 at the time. Everybody oozed confidence and Nick was extremely charismatic. Daniel Pope, then 25, recalls Russian being a very handsome man who looked as if he belonged in Hollywood. Russian whittled it down to 30 people, who then prepared to say goodbye to their lives for an entire year. Notices were handed in, relationships ended, homes and possessions sold, only for the promise of cash, fame and success to come crashing down. A new three-part documentary, The Greatest Show Never Made, tells this wild story. Merging fresh interviews with contestants' original 2002 footage and colourful and goofy reenactments, it transports viewers back to the early 2000s reality TV boom, when a sixth of the UK's population was watching Big Brother and a spate of copycat series would emerge in its wake. Such shows offered a chance of escape, adventure and to potentially change the course of ordinary people's lives. Jane Marshall was 21 and living with her parents near Manchester. She felt like something was missing from my life and hoped the show could boost her profile as an aspiring actor. Tim Eagle was 37 and feeling stuck while working as a clown. I was time rich but money poor, he says. I had a nice life, a solid social housing flat, he says, but couldn't see how I could make the next step. This felt like it could get me on the housing ladder. Miller, meanwhile, was working in the carpet industry in Birmingham, but needed something that would give me a buzz. She was supporting her parents financially and saw the prize money as a means to eradicate their worry and mine. Pope had moved from the Caribbean to London two years earlier and simply wanted an adventure. I jumped headfirst into any opportunity I saw he says. Contestants packed for all eventualities 
thinking they might be sent to a jungle, only to be directed to London. There, they were split into three teams of ten. Team two, which Pope, Marshall, Miller and Eagle were part of, found themselves in New Cross, south-east London, in this dank, damp park where everyone was standing in the rain, recalls Pope. All the professionalism and crew of those first auditions had vanished. Russian, with his leather jacket and Hugh Grant hair, hovered in the background making phone calls while groups of perplexed people stood around. Each team had been given their challenge. To make one million pounds in a year. It became clear there was no prize money. They had to make their own, as well as find food and shelter. Oh, and the show didn't exist. There was no commission from a broadcaster, as they had been told. Russian's idea was to make it, and, he hoped, sell it. Seven members of Team 2 relocated to Eagle's nearby flat to take stock. Tim had been given the role of cameraman on the show and so was filming everything using his own equipment. I was on a mission, he says. It was changing in front of me, but I could still hold on to it. Then it just evolved quickly and became another story. By this point, teams one and three had smelled a rat and bailed out. Russian was not, in fact, head of the prestigious Nick Russian Productions, but was working in Waterstones. Still, team two pressed ahead. People were saying, maybe it's a test, says Miller, and we've got to prove our worth. Day turned into night, and soon Tim had a flat full of people sleeping on floors, sofas and chairs, clinging on to the hope that this show might still happen. I was ready to stay no matter what, says Marshall. I thought, let's see what we can do. Eagle set up a diary room and the group began making their own reality TV show. The footage is evocative of the time. Bottles of WKD blue, retro England kits, bootcut jeans and the bright purple living room walls of Eagle's flat which, in The Greatest Show Never Made, has been reconstructed as a set where contestants are interviewed. An extraordinarily surreal experience, says Eagle, like The Truman Show. Some people had too much riding on the show to give up. My dad had high expectations and was always disappointed in me, says Marshall. He had told me not to go, so the hardest thing would have been to go back home and see his face saying, I told you so. I couldn't stand that disappointment. Miller had quit her job and left behind a long-term boyfriend. Only Pope, a student between degrees, had made no large sacrifices. Matters became really bizarre when Russian turned up at Eagle's flat and announced that he too was broke and homeless, asking if he could stay with them. One contestant threatened to kill him. I said no fisticuffs, recalled Eagle. The atmosphere was really tense. The group's focus changed. Nick had scammed and deceived us, so all our energy went into how can we get our own back, recalls Marshall. We all had something in common, adds Pope. We hated Nick. Eagle stuck the camera on Russian as he sat with his head hung low, chain-smoking cigarettes, looking bruised. 
The group conspired to invite ITV's London Tonight to ambush their reality show swindler at the flat. We stuck him in the corner and grilled him until this proper crew came, recalls Eagle. I love the multi-layer madness of that. We managed to hoist him by his own petard and hang him out to dry on the medium he so wished to be a part of. The report ran on ITV on a Thursday night, three days after the group came to the flat, by which point Russian had fled. A day later, the group met a producer to discuss selling the footage to make an actual show. The answer was no. He was like, on your way, it doesn't work like that, Eagle recalls. The adrenaline surge that had kept them going had now subsided as reality crept in. I asked my girlfriend to come back, and she said no, recalls Eagle. We split up, and that knocked me for six. It was deeply embarrassing. A lot of us had had send-off parties. I'd been thrown this huge surprise party. It floored me. I never picked my camera up again, and I just went back to being a clown. I had to overcome humiliation, says Miller. I felt embarrassed to go home so soon with everything I had banking on it. Everything felt flat. For Marshall, the idea of returning to a disappointed father was simply too much, and she stayed with other group members in London for months on end, finding a job there. At this point, the documentary team had not heard from Russian and so hired a private investigator to track him down. We've never learned the why behind all this, says Pope. But I think he's a damaged man. I pity him. He was an egotist, cultish, adds Eagle. It was all about him. He was going to be the front man and take all our money. However, despite the clear resentments contestants may have once felt, their reunion has resulted in a softened perspective to their experience. It's taken a painful memory and allowed me to completely reappraise it, says Eagle, who has written a book based on his experiences. Miller, now happily settled with the family, concludes that life experiences are a gift, no matter what, and I now really appreciate that. Pope works in finance, is very content, and hopes his own daughter will also undertake weird experiences and live life to the fullest. As for Marshall, who eventually returned home to a supportive hug from her father, the experience gave her the confidence to pursue her dreams, gaining more acting work in the ensuing years. If I hadn't done it, I'm not sure I would be the person I am now, she says. No matter what life has thrown at me since, you just pick yourself up and carry on. That was One Year, £100,000. How an advert for a reality show led to a big British TV mystery by Daniel Dillon Ray, read by Isabel Farrah. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that Women's Football Weekly is back. Host Faye Carruthers and Guardian football writer Suzanne Rack guide you through the biggest stories from the best leagues. Search for Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts.
This week's articles are read by Dan Starkey, Suan Braun and Isabel Farah and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.